I'm Al Phil Reese, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for poems that interest us, some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Penn Sound archive, writing.upenn.edu slash Sound. Today, I'm joined here in Philadelphia at the Kelly Writers House in our Wexler studio by Michael Keller poet, curator, blogger, and literary prize administrator. See, I used the A word there, Mike. Author of the poetry collection, Visible Instruments, uh, coming out at some point soon, we hope, from Chacks Press, as well as the collections Human Scale, and to be sung both from Blazevox and, Mike, add, add the new Blazevox title. Uh, Museum Hours. And Museum Hours, also Blazevox, maker of the Aimless Reading Project, in which he photographed, cataloged, and wrote about the 1,200-plus titles in his library, and who is the director of the Wyndham Campbell Literature Prizes at Yale University. And by Ron Silliman, a poet first published in 1965, who has since written more than 30 books, among whose influential critical texts is The New Sentence, whose overall poetic work is and will be four long poems, The Age of Huts, 1974-1980, completed in 2007, Chanting, 1979-1981, the monumental 26-book effort. Does that count as... One book or 26 in the 30? It's, it's got to count it, as one. It's one-fourth. That's bizarre. Uh, the <laughs> mo- monument, you are bizarre. Monumental 26-book effort called The Alphabet, 1979 to 2004, published 2008. And, he's not done yet, Universe, 2005 to the present, and who I'm delighted to say has taught courses in creative writing here at the Kelly Writers House. And by Daniel Bergman, a student of literature, art history, and other subjects who has taken courses here at Penn and at Harvard, who has served as a community TA in the open online course on modern and contemporary poetry called ModPo, and who believes, as he has often said, that forming interpretive communities of learners is, to use his phrase, not impossible. Dan credits his <laughs> Dan credits his studies in open online courses hosted by Coursera, uh, with bringing him out of the isolation imposed by his autism, particularly Modpo. He says, which led to his first visit here to the Writer's House some years ago, four years ago. The voice you will hear today speaking Dan's thoughts belongs to Kate Herslin, a playwright who was his aide last year when Dan took courses here at Penn, and who is sitting next to him now with a letter board onto which he will spell his thoughts. So welcome, Mike, to Poem Talk for the first time. Thanks, Al. It's great to be here. I'm glad you're here. And also, I think, to the Writer's House for the first time. First time to Penn. Okay, what are your impressions? It's lovely. (laughs) I wish I was my house. (laughs) Those are the right answers. Thank you, Mike, for coming down from New Haven. And Dan, so good to see you back at the Writer's House where you... Always, always, always are welcome. Great to see you, Al. Glad you're here, Dan. Uh, And I can't wait to this conversation. Indeed. Uh, And uh, Kate. Hello. Hey, welcome back. Great to be here, too. Thanks for helping Dan. Thank you. And us. And Ron, it pleases me no end to see you here every week. (laughs) 
<laughs> Thank you. It's a pleasure. Fantastic. Okay, so the so we're here, the four of us are here to talk about three poems by Larry Eigner. The first, Again Dawn, was written in November 1959. The second, whose first line is A Temporary Language, was written on September 1st and 2nd in 1970. And the third, Unyielding Rock, uh, was written on May 31st, 1971. These poems can be found in the Stanford University Press, four-volume collected poems of Eigner, set out in eight and a half by 11 with non-proportional courier font to somewhat reproduce the way Larry Eigner typed, though it didn't perfectly reproduce it. We'll maybe talk about that. And that book, that four-volume collection, has been edited by Robert Grenier and Curtis Faville as follows now in the book, the, four po the three poems, Again Dawn, Volume 2, page 357, A Temporary Language in Volume 3, page 970, and Unyielding Rock, Volume 3, page 1013. So Penn Sound's Eigner page has remarkable recordings of various occasions when Eigner read his poems. Our recording of Again Dawn was made during Larry Eigner's appearance on KPFA Radio in Berkeley with Jack Foley on March in March of 1994. Our recording of A Temporary Language and Unyielding Rock, both of them, come from an album entitled, and really a cassette, titled Around New Sound Daily Means, selected poems produced and issued by S-Press as their tape number 37, recorded by Michael Kohler at, at Swampskit. That's how you pronounce Swampscott, right? Swampskit, Massachusetts. Am I right? Does anybody know? Nobody knows. Okay, well, I'm just going to say Swampskit, and we'll get letters from people in Massachusetts on July 1st and 11th in 1974. As an aid to those who don't have the text of the poems in front of them and might have trouble discerning all the words in Larry Eigner's performances, we've asked Ron Silliman to read the poems also. So here now is Larry Eigner, and then Ron Silliman reading three of Eigner's poems in this order, Again Dawn, A Temporary Language, and Unyielding Rock. Again done, the sky dropped its invisible witness, witness we saw pass up, no more empty the blue stars, <clears throat> I stumbled on the ground, last night another time in Again dawn, the sky dropped its invisible whiteness. We saw pass out nowhere. Empty the blue stars, our summer on the ground, like last night another time in fragments. Temporary language is temporary things and poetry the mass of everyday life. What time of the day is it there? What have you to do with or gotten done? A temporary language as temporary things, and poetry the math of everyday life. What time of the day is it, lad? What have you to do with or gotten done? Unyielding rock can't pull out trackless the night. What you hear, some belief can't find 
need the popcorn, chicken bacon, even water, bushes, beer on the wind, cakes, branches, birds, leaves run together, the moon peels in the earth, that ticket beyond walls. Unyielding rock, cars pull off, track less the night. What you hear, some belief, sad songs, and there's a foghorn. Circulation, air and water, voices bear on the wind, shapes, branches, birds, leaves run together, the moon field in the earth articulate beyond walls. So I'd like to begin with, again, Dawn. We don't have to go in order. We don't have to do close readings of all three of them. But let's begin. Let's do them roughly in order. So I'd like each of you very, very briefly just to throw out on the table um, about, again, Dawn, what you think its major concerns are, thematic or otherwise. So can we start with you, Mike? Just throw something out. Uh, cyclicality of time, transitional space. Fantastic. Ron? I, I, you know, another time in fragments is a phrase that Larry used to entitle one of his first books. And I feel that that sense of the present, both as a focus for so much of his work and of the brokenness of the present uh, feel like the push-pull that this poem is working with and against. Hmm. Fantastic. Dan? Fragments, seeing the world in pieces as it is, as I do, as Agner does. Wow. So, Dan, what do you mean, what, what do you mean by specifically by fragments and how do you in particular read or hear this poem? Why do you say it's fragmented for you particularly? The world is, to me, in images that float by, float by the window. I try to make sense of them, and Eigner does it by seeing the world as it is in fragments, in all its loveliness. Ron, will you respond to that, um, to Dan's point? It, it makes total sense uh, to me, both as an experience of life in and of itself. I mean, Larry was not a Buddhist in any trained sense of the word, but so many of the concepts that Westerners associate with that worldview will feel very familiar and comfortable uh, in that same sense. It, it's worth keeping in mind that all three of these poems were written while Larry was still living with his parents in Massachusetts 
where he had very few visitors and much of every day was spent on an enclosed porch uh, looking out at the world. Uh, so that it, it's almost like, you know, having been in a monastery um, in terms of his own life experience. We should mention that Larry suffered from cerebral palsy, which restricted his movements and is what uh, created the particular kind of speaking style that he had. Which, and the typing style and as well. The, right? And the typing style as well. He had the ability to peck with his right hand and grasp with his left. Mm -hmm. uh, and that literally was the physical vocabulary he had. Just the first line to me, Mike, again, Dawn, suggests either hallelujah, another day, or this thing just goes on and on, and I'm still not making, I'm trying to make some sense of it, but it's all coming to me in pieces. I think that's right. And I think also that um, the calling it calling attention to the dawn itself which is that sort of transitional moment between the night and the day and I, I think as you, you you move through that poem when you're talking about the uh, the invisible whiteness and emptying the blue and, and, you're, and you're getting into all of these uh, ways in which you know the day feels like a, a smooth, passage of time, um, but is, you know, is actually made up of all these sort of particular parts mm. that can be broken down and experienced mm. in, in, in their own right, um, mm. as a, almost as a kind of sublime. Mm. And sublime, as Dan yeah. says, that speaks to the temporary language. Which is where we're going next. Dan, you should be the host of the show. Um, yeah, we're going to go to a temporary language. But before we do, Dan, let me read, mm. let me read um, Eigner's remarks after reading Again Dawn on KPFA. So by that point, Ron, he's moved out to San Francisco and he's on the radio with Jack Foley and he's reading an old classic. He's reading a 1959 poem in 1994. And, and even has uh, learned to uh, speak much better having mm -hmm. gone to Berkeley where he had to talk to different people mm -hmm. every day. Uh, it was very different from his experience in Massachusetts. Gee, that makes me think, uh, uh, Dan, we w I will read Eigner's comments and I would love to hear your response to it, but let's pause on what Ron just said because we chose for Poem Talk to have you read the poems on the assumption that without a text, people listening to a podcast are not are going to have some trouble discerning some of uh, Eigner's uh, enunciations. That's not, that's not an obvious move to make. Um, do you want to say something about that? Well, because it, you heard him perform a number of times. Yes, I did. And I first met him over the telephone when he moved to uh, Berkeley. I called him up just to see if I could come on over and, and wasn't quite prepared for what I then got um, in, uh, in those terms. Uh, Larry gave a limited number of readings in his life, more than Jimmy Schuyler, less than most poets. He used uh, various forms of visual aids in almost every reading he Including did. Including the text occasionally? Uh, he would hand out, uh, he wouldn't, but the person who was working with him, often Robert Grenier, would hand out copies of the poems for each person in the audience, uh, or it would be projected on a screen, which did happen sometimes. There was one large reading at the Pacific uh, Art Museum at the University of California, uh, where they actually um, 
had one of Larry's poems up on the outer wall of the museum, uh, as well as on a screen in the auditorium uh, in uh, those terms. So you're saying that Eigner himself was aware that uh, – uh aid to the reader or to the listener would be appropriate. He was aware of it. He was unhappy. Uh, the one time that a, a videotape was made of him reading and uh, Allen Ginsberg later was asked to do what I just did, which was to read those texts uh, over and they sort of brought his voice down and brought uh, Ginsburg's up. I think he felt, as he did more than once by some decisions other people made, mm -hmm. um, as if they weren't paying attention fully to him as a mature artist. Mm, right, exactly. Dan, first, uh, before I quote Eigner's remarks and get you to react, do you want to add something to our decision to have Ron read Eigner? Sure. I think... In this case, it is lovely to hear Eigner in the voice of Silliman <laughs> as it is lovely for me to hear my thoughts in Kate's voice. I, I mean that. Don't worry. All right. Fantastic. But, oh, there's, there's more. But I could see yeah. that in the time you describe that takes some of his control away, which is truly terrible to see. Thank you, Dan. Okay, so now I'm going to read Eigner's remarks. And actually, I'd like all three of you very briefly to comment on what Eigner says here. Um, when asked about, uh, after he read again, Don, he was asked about it, he said something about what it means. And he said, well, I forget what I meant and disappointed, I guess. You know, my mother said to me to communicate, you must be clear, first of all, though I soon realized that immediacy and force take priority. So, Mike, uh, the end of that is I, was, I learned how to speak clearly, but I assume realize that immediacy and force are more important than clarity. Can you do anything with that distinction? Well, you know, I was thinking about what Ron was saying about calling Larry on the phone. And, and actually, my introduction to Larry Eigner um, came when I started school in Buffalo when we were in a seminar. Um, and Ben Friedlander was in the seminar with us, and he gave a presentation on Eigner one day. He had edited Eigner's essays. And so he began the presentation by playing um, about a 10-minute answering machine message that Larry had left suggesting edits to what Ben had put together for his book. Wow. 
and Does that they recording were recording survive somewhere. Oh yeah, Ben, ben has it. Yeah, it. Ben has it, and uh, and and it's a remarkable recording. It's, you know, it's as it's it sounds very much like what, we, what we've heard today. It's it's you really have to listen very closely. But there is a, there was this incredible force and this this clarity to the force of what he was saying. You know, he 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 was he was not taking what Ben was doing lightly. I mean, he was very, you know, talking about every single decision Ben made on the page and, yeah. and, and trying to orchestrate uh, where he was moving with that, which yeah. was really remarkable. So I heard that before I ever even read a, an Eigner poem on the page. Ron, quick thought on uh, Larry Eigner's comment. Surely. Um, it is very Olsonian in the sense of Charles Olson and his concept of projector verse, which is often very casually um, taken today as though it were simply a prescription of how to use the line with regards to breath in the poem, but also, and even more importantly, so I think Larry would argue here as well, uh, in Olson's prescription that you must move instantly from one perception to the next, that, you know, immediacy and force take priority. There is that cognitive side to projective verse that is actually its most important thrust. And that's exactly what Larry is pointing to here. Wow, great. Thank you. Dan? Dan says... Immediacy and force are not my friends, but I don't think clarity is better than truth. Wow. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna move to um, actually my favorite of all of Eigner's poems, a temporary language. So it seems to me a meta poem. Um, does anybody want to say what Eigner might mean by the math of everyday life? Well, it's interesting because he starts off with you know temporary, temporary, um, and, and and he's calling attention to the the sort of temporary nature of language, which initially I thought always oh, talking about. Poetry, uh, right, right from that particular so moment. May, maybe it's not a meta poem, huh? Well, may, but no, I think it is because the poetry is the math of everyday life. So, so that which underlies everything else, right? So, the, the, everything, the language that we use to describe things is temporary. The things themselves are temporary, but perhaps poetry is the thing that can kind of undergird that and give it, give it meaning and give it, give it purpose. Math of everyday. Life is sequence or order of events, which is the poetry of, of each day for me of putting the pieces together so I might live in the world. Wow, Dan. That's, I mean, it's a profound statement f about your own uh, work and your own life, but it's also a great gloss on the poem. Uh, you're saying essentially that um, the question what time of day is it has to do with the work that Larry Eigner is accomplishing as a poet in that day. Does that make sense, Ron, Mike? 
Yes. What I, time of day is it, lad? What have you what have you to do with or gotten done? The the ordering of day has to do with making of the poems. Does that make sense? It it does. And I think given the fact that he was not only a writer, but a voluminous writer. This is a man who, after all, left 3,000 poems uh, behind, which is an amazing accomplishment when you think of it, but often was not seen as, as necessarily being productive and driven in a way that he obviously was. The, the, the parts that really intrigue me about this poem are the two moments where there are real twists in the language. One is the use of the word lad, which is a term that suggests not just talking to oneself, but talking to oneself from a sort of super ego position and a critical one. And the other one is around the word life, which I see as put into a place where something that would rhyme with the word things would be expected by the prosody. And he's withheld that rhyme from us at exactly that point after setting it up for us to hear it with the reiteration of the word temporary. So he brings it up to it and he pulls it back. And and I don't know what the what the absented word might have been, but it, it seems very very clear that he's playing with both presence and absence uh, at, at that point, and then with this angle of discourse, talking to himself as a lad, which, frankly, in, in 1970, he was 44 years old, hardly a lad in that sense. Mm -hmm. What do you think about the phrase, what have you to do with? That's a really strangely ambiguous phrase that I've been kind of mulling over in my head. I think, and it goes back to that, the grasping versus pecking thing. It's like, what have you taken on? You know, what, what, what was the substantial challenge you picked for that day, which could be large, like a poem, or it could be very small. You know, it's like, what has been the scale of your challenge? How have you challenged yourself today? What did you set as a goal? Hmm. Dan, um, following from what Ron just said, uh, does the temporary language, is, is, is that what he's gotten done by the end of the poem, the, the, this poem itself? That's why I called it a metapoem earlier. Is this poem the thing that he's accomplished in this day? And why temporary then, since the poem seems to have survived and we're reading it now? Exactly, yes. Temporary language. I know for myself it's never it's never there forever exactly but you you say it still mm. because you you must that's great um it's really profound because it makes me think that the first part of the question that Mike was pointing out, what have you got, what have you to do with, is a question about, seems to be a fractured question about relevance, maybe responsibility, and then it turns to productivity. 
from that, Dan? It's so important. It seems not, but it is. So let's thank you all for that. Um, let's turn to Unyielding Rock. And I don't expect that we'll have time to do a close reading of this poem, but uh, let's, let's have a few comments, and then we can talk overall about, about what we see in Eigner. Um, we go from temporary language to an unyielding rock. Ron, is that an unusual image of stability? It's um, perhaps unusual in its presence in Larry's world. Yeah. Um, you know, I, as with the temporary in the previous poem or the word again starting the first poem, which I've always read as an index that he hadn't slept the night before. Um, again dawn. Again dawn. The indeterminacy of, of life itself is a really important uh, phenomenon to Larry, and yet to have something that is literally articulate beyond walls. I mean, that's a that's a term that carries not only uh, a New England reading, but also a reading in terms of Jewish culture um, that one might not always hear or recognize in Larry's work. That seems to be, uh, you know, uh, invoked here. New England because of the stone walls that are ubiquitous in a Frostian sense. In the, in the most consciously Frostian sense, right. yes. And then beyond walls, you said there's something, some part of a Judaic tradition being invoked. Can you say that again? Well, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not Jewish, so I don't really fully understand the meaning of the wall in uh, Jerusalem, for example, or the meaning of walls in those terms, or even, you know, what that wall might mean if he were thinking of Berlin uh, in that sense. But all of, the, you know, it's, it's not a term that doesn't have a history, uh, and some of those aspects, I think, resonate with Larry's life. Tribulation, even water, bushes, beer in the wind, shapes, branches, birds, leaves run together, the moon peels in the earth, that take it beyond water. And now we've got voices bearing on the wind, shapes, branches, birds. So that's either the particularities of nature or it's resolving the rock into something very airy and vague and insubstantial, the voices on the wind. So is he shifted or is he um, reinforces a, a sense of the unyielding actuality and reality? Well, you know, I, I was reading this poem as a poem about listening, and I and I I feel like the f when I read that first paragraph, I, I feel like we're listening to somebody, or we're, we're paying attention to somebody listening to say the radio, and 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 then and then suddenly rock takes on a different tone. <laughs> oh, it's music, <laughs> unyielding have a rock car. and roll. We do right? have a car driving in the night, or and then trackless. Off. You know, this is the age of the eight-track tape, oh and then goodness. what you hear: some belief, a preacher, or sad songs on the radio, and then you're drawn away from it There's towards fog the foghorn, and then to nature, the circulation of air and water, and then voices. You, you, you now you're kind of See, off in this, almost in a reverie at this point. The voices and the shapes and the branches and the birds and everything kind of running together, mm -hmm. and so beyond walls is this articulation of you know the, the waves of the radio moving out beyond the stone. Wow. Wow, um, what an I hadn't thought of that at all. Um, Dan, can you help us with this 
sense of articulation at the end. The moon field in, sorry, leaves run together, the moon field in the earth, articulate beyond walls. What kind of articulation Absolutely, is this? You yes. knew I was going to ask you about this. <laughs> Please. I know. I know you. What <laughs> do so, <laughs> articulate yeah. beyond walls. I know so much about this. This idea that there are barriers, but the struggle for Eigner and for me to say it, to live it is the life you must write for yourself you must articulate for yourself. Are you saying that you try to articulate outside the wall that walls you in? Precisely. Then, yeah, okay. Precisely. All right, so any of us, any of you, how, how does that thought, as so well explained by Dan... How does that come from a poem that starts with unyielding rock? I'm kind of leaving aside the rock and roll reading there because I don't know what to do with that. But <laughs> <laughs> Anybody, how do we go from unyielding rock to this? I mean, I, I, I'm persuaded by Dan's reading that, um, that Eigner is, he wants this poem like he wants a temporary language to get beyond his limitations and to do that work for him. I assume that's partly what Dan is saying to um, reference those voices. I mean, one of the, the interesting phenomena of reading Larry's work in large, and I probably have read every poem he's written, is that there are these elements with where they almost look like lists, voices, bear. Bear is a one-word line. So you hear, you know, the noun as well as the verb, you know, um, and also the adverbial aspect of that word all simultaneously. Um, you know, the mind creates, um, you know, something linguists call the part through the parsimony principle, the the straightest path that allows you to make an articulate version of the poem for yourself. Mm. And Larry's very conscious of how difficult it is on the other end to create the right string. And and I have to say, I don't think Larry's parents listened to rock and roll, so I doubt Larry <laughs> did at this point either. He's, he's probably closer to Ted Berrigan, another poet from that part of the world, mm. and part of the uh, Julius LaRosa Arthur Godfrey School. School of Music. The Arthur Godfrey School. You would refer to Arthur Godfrey. I'm glad. This is the first time in 90-some in episodes of Poem Talk that someone referred to Arthur Godfrey. Thank you. We're going to make an index of this. Um, so what I'd like to do is I'd like to go around to the three of you, and you can speak to either of these two questions, and, and please be brief. Either, either 
um, speak, say something about why those who are not familiar with Eigner's poems should get into maybe not all the thousands of them, but some of them. And the other, the alternative to this would be for you to speak to why it's important to, for us to have listened to Eigner perform the poems, um, since we have voices in this poem and we get to hear Larry Eigner's voice. Why is that important? I think most people just encounter the poems on the page and they really were made for the page. Those, those eight and a half by 11 pages are fields. So, um, Mike, I know you want to answer both, but either one, <laughs> either one. I, I was thinking about what Ron was saying earlier about the, the sort of, you know, the non-Buddhist Buddhism in, in Larry's work. And when I read his work, I, 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 I think a lot about a, a Japanese filmmaker, Yasujiro Ozu. And, and there's this sense of like this, this, this fixed camera that stays in one place from a low, low angle and just looks forward at the action unfolding it before it. And then what's unfolding before it is is framed in a series of frames. And so you look through, you're looking into a room and then at the back of the room there's a doorway and then there's action going on in that doorway and then there's another doorway through there. And and you know the the, the films are always about the, the sort of the human and the emotional and the the uh, the action that's occurring in that sphere. But it seems like always the most important moments in his films occur when Suddenly, you're just looking at steam coming out of a teapot mm. for a long time, mm. or you're watching a train go by in the background, or something like that. And that's and that's the feeling that I get when when I read Larry's poems. There's this there's this richness and there's this density to the field that that he's looking through, and and yet it's 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 looked at from this very sort of still position that allows things to just sort of come in. Um, and and, I, and it, it's profoundly moving work to me. Fantastic. Dan, um, either of those questions, either about hearing his recording or about why people should read Eigner. You must hear him perform. It is so important to listen to the struggle, to hear the walls he fights beyond, articulates beyond to say, to say the thing that he must say. Thank you, Dan. Ron, which one of those questions do you want to answer? I, there are such riches in Larry Eigner's work, and he uses such a basic, quote, simple, unquote, vocabulary with which to read them, that he's actually a wonderful first poet for people who've never read contemporary or modern poetry to begin with, because they, these riches go on forever. I've been reading Larry Eigner now for half a century, and I you know, can go through them and gain new things every time. 
Well, thank you all. We, we, that, was, that was sort of our round of final words, but um, I'd like to invite you each briefly to look at any of the three poems and pick out a line or a phrase that you just want to put into the record and say something about it, a line or phrase that was particularly striking to you. And Mike, I didn't give you very long to think about this, but would you, would you, st <laughs> would you start? Some belief, sad songs, and there's a foghorn. And why? What's so good about that? I think that if we go with my reading that he's listening to the radio ahead, in this, um, you know, I, I, I feel that you, get, you, you really get this sense of a mind searching for something to engage it. And, 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 and the way that those phrases are sort of stacked on top of each other. And it is kind of list-like, but it, it, to me, it's, it's just this sort of movement towards, you know, finding an object to finally light on. And I think it's a really, you know, it's, it's a real gift to be able to um, feel the rhythm of another person's mind that you can get in poetry. And I think that's evident here. Great. Thank you, Mike. Empty the Blue from Again Dawn. Um, it is such a classic Larry line in that it is part of a larger sequence that the, those objects, those nouns, uh, but at the same time set in such a way that by itself it, it so reverses the typical balance of what you expect. Mm. That I mean, he's describing the night sky turning into the day sky, empty the blue. Um, that uh, it completely transforms the moment, and and his work is so full of those moments that just suddenly turn on themselves in the simplest phrase, the simplest words. Mm. He really teaches you not to do too much. Mm. Fantastic, Dan. Favorite line or phrase? Again, dawn, because of the temporality of the dawn, but the stability of again. Fantastic. I'm going to add one. Um, I like the first two lines of a temporary language, and I like the way the word as works. A temporary language as temporary things. When I think of this poem as stipulating um, the idea of a supreme fiction, uh, the you know that you can accomplish something in a day, and that as Dan was telling us, it's it's still a, a, a struggle to make it anything more than temporary. But the as there suggests that there is an, a deep alignment of the language, for instance, of this poem and the things in Larry Eigner's world, which are temporary as well. And that alignment is is really powerful, and it makes. It makes the poem one of those things, and since we're reading it all these years later, hardly temporary at all. So we like to end Poem Talk with a minute or two of Gathering Paradise. Each of you, uh, I'm going to ask you to spread wide your narrow hands and to gather something really poetically good to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world, a new book, a poet you admire, a literary prize you want to recommend. <laughs> Ron, you look like somebody ready to uh, recommend something. Go ahead, please. 
I want to recommend the fond memory of Snocky's Oyster Bar, which is a 102-year-old establishment in Queens Village in Philadelphia that has had readings in its back room for the past year or two. Um, wonderful old space, fabulous seafood. Uh, the owners have decided to call it a career, and they're selling the building. There will be a couple of more readings, but they will have been sent into that temporary space by the time you hear this. Fantastic. Thank you, Ron. Dan, gather some paradise. I, I would like to recommend the poem by Sid Corman. It's not for want of something to say as I simply love being here with you all reading as long as you are as long as you are. I love it. Channeling Sid Corman, especially in relation to Eigner. That's fantastic, Dan. Mike, gather some paradise. Well, you mentioned literary prizes, uh, which we discussed earlier today. Um, and uh, I guess I'll take this moment to make an announcement, which is Please that do. the Wyndham Campbell Literature Prizes, which I run at Yale University, uh, which currently recognize only fiction, nonfiction, and drama, are going to be adding poetry as a category. Is this the first time publicly that's being and said? And this is the first public announcement. So, so the prize will now include poets. That's fantastic. Well, I'm going to gather some paradise in honor of you, Mike, who came the furthest. Not much further than Dan did, who came from New York, but you came from New Haven. And my gathering paradise is unusual because the Bonnicky Library, as a structure, as a piece of architecture, seems very forbidding when you approach it. And it turns out to be a fabulous space inside, not just because of all the fantastic literary manuscripts, including the Gertrude Stein manuscripts, among many others. But it's really an amazing institution, and it is uh, the Bonnicky is being completely re refitted this year. And Mike, is it ready next year? Uh, it's set to open again in September of 2016. So next September. Okay. So in in New Haven, Connecticut, at Yale University, stop in at the Bonnicky Library, if only just to see this extraordinary building. I can't wait to see it when it's been fully renovated. Well, that's all the articulation beyond walls we have time for on Poem Talk today. Poem Talk at the Writers' House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing and the Kelly Writers' House at the University of Pennsylvania and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. Thanks to my guests. Thanks so much, Mike Kelleher, uh, Dan Bergman, Ron Silliman, and thank you, Kate, for assisting here. Uh, and to Zach Cardner and Nick Seymour and Adelaide Powell, who the three of them, and who are smiling at me now in the control room, directed and engineered our show today, and to Poem Talk's editor, the same Zach Cardner. Next time on Poem Talk, Herman Beavers, Salamisha Tillett, and Chris Mustaza join me in a discussion of a newly discovered 1935 recording of James Weldon Johnson's Oh, Southland. 
And this is Al Filreis. So I hope you'll join us for that or another Poem Talk.